Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hey, oh, everybody. It's Matt Issa, the guy with the shitty basketball takes, or as my buddy Dill likes to call me, the guy who watched Moneyball once and then decided it was a good idea to set out on an eight-month journey to answer the most monumental question in the history of basketball. Back again to bring you the final chapter from his voyage. Please remember that the first episode of the series, where I set the stage for our grand odyssey and reveal who's getting left out of the big dance, as well as chapters 2 through 5, where I break down numbers 10 through 3 on our list, are all already up on all podcast platforms. You should definitely check out those before you dive into this piece of work. Anyway, in the final chapter of our six-part saga, we will seek to answer once and for all the question that's on everybody's mind. Who is the greatest player in NBA history? Timestamps and the link to the article explaining my AOS stat will be included in the description of this episode. Now for the very last time, Without further ado, I give you the quest for the best. Whatever happens, I want you to know. The kids was in his eyes. I'm the best of the best. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way down to. Okay, so this time we're going to deviate from the outline of most of the other episodes of this series. Instead of announcing number two, going through the awe case for them, and then announcing number one, and going through the awe case for them, I will be juxtaposing MJ and LeBron's actual, analytical, accolade, and anecdotal arguments for the top spot simultaneously. So I'll do the actual category for both of them, then I'll do the analytical category for both of them, and so on and so on. Then at the end, I will sort out who slots in where on our countdown. I'm doing this for a few different reasons. One, for dramatic appeal. Two, to avoid having the fans of the player that finishes number two on our countdown just sit there through the entire episode with a sour expression on their face, constantly shouting out phrases like wrong or this guy's a fucking dumbass at their cellular device. And most importantly to illustrate just how incredibly close these two are to one another historically. One last caveat I will add before we fully immerse ourselves in the GOAT debate is that going into this project, I was fully convinced that MJ was the greatest player who ever lived. In fact, my motivation for creating this entire series, at least early on, was to create the most comprehensive argument for why he deserves this designation. A very weird thing to do on behalf of a guy I've never met, I know. I won't say if months of research or interviews did or did not change my opinion just yet, but I thought it was important that I foreground my biases heading into all of this. Now, with that out of the way, the chapter we've all been waiting for. Mano y mano, new verse old. 
The King versus his heirness. LeBron James versus Michael Jordan. Who will come out on top? Here goes. It's time to do, 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 do. Okay, now I swear this time for real. That's the last time. Not the last time I'll make another obscure cultural reference. Still have about 12 of those to go. But the last time I do it simply for the fact that it had a huge influence on my formative years. Oh, and by the way, since LeBron is the only contemporary player on this list, and talking about players in the past tense has been lodged in my brain at this point, I'll be referring to LeBron in the past tense for most of this breakdown. Just an FYI. Now let's kick off our actual arguments with... Again, not to put you on the spot if you don't want to answer. It's fine. LeBron or MJ? LeBron. Okay. Okay. Okay, what about... What about peak wise, LeBron or MJ? I'm just gonna answer LeBron for all of them. So really, yeah. So like you, you okay? Can you like break that down for me? Why is why is LeBron's peak better? I can understand why you pick him if you you know if you're thinking like longevity wise, but why is his peak better? Um, to me, I think just simply like who is the best at basketball? LeBron James. The narrative surrounding LeBron's insatiable self-fixation and penchant for micromanagement is far from baseless character assassination, as we've seen those very personality traits exemplified in his on-court conduct. Whether it's demanding ball screens, instructing teammates where they're supposed to be on defense, or providing unsolicited coaching advice from his seat on the bench, LeBron's domineering style and attention to detail has reduced his head coaches to clipboard-touting figureheads and rendered their playbooks into mere suggestions. His ball-dominant style and too-smart-for-his-own-good complex made it difficult for other ball-dominant players to effectively inhabit the same offensive scheme. And after having the pleasure of watching his career unfold for the last decade and a half, I can confidently say that no basketball player has had more of a hand in on-court play calling than the pride of St. Vincent St. Mary's himself. But just like I said in my magic breakdown... Who the hell cares? LeBron's combination of strength, speed, versatility, and passing brilliance gave him a seemingly unprecedented combination of skills in NBA history. And those very skills turned a mere mortal from Akron, Ohio, into a weapon of mass destruction. At his best, he had the power to turn fringe rotation players into his on-court hitmen, to grind elite opposing defenses into dust to elevate ordinary teams to surefire title contenders overnight. In a career defined by unattainable expectations, the man once dubbed as the chosen one demonstrated to us all that unattainable was merely a five-syllable word, and there was truly no mountain too steep for the king to conquer. And after nearly two decades of breathtaking achievements, the final question now becomes, was it all enough? Has LeBron finally caught his ghost and supplanted Michael Jordan as the greatest player who ever lived? Let's find out. I once called my good friend Bryce Simon Basketball's Einstein, and while I made this proclamation in good faith, throwing around such a label was irresponsible with a human being like LeBron James occupying this version of our timeline. A human calculator with washboard abs, the more I watched LeBron, the more it seemed like he was playing two games on the court at once. 
on one end, he's dominating some of the greatest athletes in the world with that insane package of skills that we hinted at earlier. While on the other, he's dueling with opposing teams' head coaches in a mental game of basketball chess. The only problem for them is that LeBron is the supreme grandmaster. The king had a counter for almost every strategy deployed against him. LeBron is almost Belichickian in the way he was able to adjust mid-game. A perfect example of this can be seen in Game 4 of the 2020 NBA Finals. Coach Spolster tries defanging his former player by having Heat defenders sag off on LeBron and dare him to beat them with his jumper, a strategy that has, as we will see later, often been used against James. This technique made it difficult for LeBron to make entry passes in the paint as by sagging off him, the Heat were able to suffocate the interior, which led to a handful of Laker turnovers in the first half. In the second half, LeBron, an improved jump shooter at this point of his career, began taking those uncontested looks they were giving him and draining them, one after the other. This forced defenders to play him tighter and as a result opened up the lane for him to get downhill and initiate some purple and gold power plays. It was this Kantian understanding of the game that led me to call LeBron James one of the three best passers of the all-time greats I studied. And while he may not have been the court mapper that Bird was, and is a clear notch below magic and poise and manipulation, James is an incredible passer in his own right, thanks to his ability to leverage his physical tools to gain entrance into passing windows few players in history have ever had access to. Like magic, LeBron's athleticism allows him to move defenders around as he pleases and use the openings his presence creates to find open teammates for easy looks. And when those opportunities present themselves, he's got a Tampa Bay Rays bullpen of different pitching styles at his disposal, his most identifiable throw being that left-to-right pass that he makes to shooters on the corner. His ampidexterity allows him to make that skip pass in either direction while rolling to the rim with great proficiency. His passing acumen improved as the years went on and his institutional knowledge had increased. This is evident from his passer rating peaking in the 2019-20 season where he posted a 9.5, the highest non-magic score of any of the all-time greats. Years of game reps have taught the man who entered the league as a teenager that going 110 miles per hour wasn't always the best course of action and that slowing things down and relying on his bell curve skewing IQ was sometimes the better way of approaching things. His playmaking was also augmented by his threat to score. Equipped with Carl Malone's strength and an Isaiah Thomas first step, very few players in league history could disrupt LeBron James as he barreled his way down the lane. In his early years, he relied more on the latter attribute as he was able to zoom by defenders at will, while as he's gotten older, he's leaned more on his Adonis frame to allow him to absorb contact like a heavyweight fighter on his way to the world title. Both methods have been fruitful for him as he's constantly hovered around that 8-12 to 12 free throw attempts per 100 possessions for his career, peaking at a Shaq level 14 attempts per 100 possessions in the 2009-2010 season. Like we said, his rim finishing abilities led to defenders regularly sagging off him during the early parts of his career in an attempt at cutting off his momentum to the rim. This technique worked well at times, but during the 2011-2012 season, LeBron refined his postgame to combat this tactic. After falling to the Mavs in the 2011 Finals, LeBron went on a quest of his own to seek out wisdom in the fine arts from the master himself, Hakeem Olajuwon. From there, the dream helped transform James from habitual pick-and-roll spammer into a more balanced offensive focal point. 
He retained the ability to drive to the rim and make quick time decisions in those situations, but now he could also operate from the block like a souped-up Magic Johnson, surgically dissecting the defense as an ultimate human mismatch. To avoid getting Brock Lesnar by the overwhelming force that was King James, teams almost always had to send a second defender at him when he received the ball on the block, which proved to be just another outlet for him to kickstart a kick-out, swing, swing, hey, look, it's an open shooter sequence. On the few occasions that a defender was sturdy enough to hold his own against him, LeBron would just elevate over the top of them for his own variation of the MJ Kobe fallaway jumper. That postgame, while a very welcome addition to an already potent offensive arsenal, was probably a necessary development for prime LeBron as during his peak years he was always a very streaky jump shooter. This is evident when you look at his playoff three-point shooting numbers on a year-by-year -year basis. In 2007, he shot 28% from three in the playoffs. In 2010, he shot 40%. In 2012, he shoots 26. In 2014, he shoots 41. In 2015, 23%. And then in 2017, 41% from downtown. And since LeBron is almost always going deep in the playoffs, most of these shooting performances are drawn from 20 plus game sample sizes, which decreases the likelihood of noise being present in this variability. A similar trend of streakiness can be seen when looking at his free throw percentages, which as most of us know are a strong indicator of a player's shooting proficiency. For his career, his regular season free throw shooting percentages have been anywhere between 66 and 78%. Once again, a pretty large range of averages. I will say that over the last three seasons in LA, his jump shot has become a little more consistent, but since this occurred after his peak, this hurts him when we're comparing his apex to Jordan's. Another facet of LeBron's game that garners comparison to Magic is his wizardry and transition. If that bulldozer frame seemed intimidating when he was barreling to the rim from the three-point line, it was absolutely terrifying when he had the full length of the court to ramp up to his top speed. And once he was operating at maximum velocity, that duality of unselfish passing and elite level finishing became an even more lethal combination. In fact, I'd say that among the all-time greats, he ranks second in this category only behind LA's original purple and gold king. He's not number one here because unlike Magic, who was always looking for chances to kickstart the break, Ron was more of the I'll-take-advantage-of-those-chances-when-they-come type. This assessment checks out when you look at their team's pace numbers during their career. Magic's teams finished in the top half in pace in 10 of his 12 seasons, while LeBron's have only done so in 5. His off-ball offense, outside of the interior gravity his postgame provided, was nothing crazy spectacular. Teams could utilize that great finishing ability on backdoor cuts, or maybe even have him hit jumpers off flare screen actions or in the catch and shoot. I saw him occasionally on a few instances used as a role man as well. Something I think he should be doing more often with the arrival of Russell Westbrook in LA, for those of you listening in 2021. More times than not though, when the ball wasn't in James's hands on offense, he was a pretty stationary figure on the court. And the more I've thought about this over the last few months, I don't really have too much of an issue with it. We said LeBron was an on-court calculator, and the algorithm in his brain functioned much like Magic's in the way that he saw his time away from the basketball as an opportunity to come up for some air and refuel for his next turn at the wheel. However, unlike Magic, 
the King wasn't solely fueling up for his on-ball touches. He was conserving some energy for the other end of the court as well. Where he has been for almost nearly two decades, one of the more impactful players the league has ever seen. Ian Thompson told me that if we were creating a basketball player in a lab, you'd want him to have LeBron James' hardware. And that statement was never more true when you look at his defensive profile. Programmed with Bird's intelligence, Duncan's positional astuteness, Hakeem's reaction time, and Garnett's matchup versatility, on paper, James was the ideal defensive player. And on the court, he wasn't too far from that standard either. Starting off ball, like almost all of the all-time great non-big men, he operated in that roaming free safety position, and for what my money's worth, he functioned in that role better than any of the other greats. He used those menacing Sharingan eyes to deduce how sequences would play out before the other team's offensive players were even sure what they were doing on the court. I mean it when I say it that his familiarity with opposing team scouting reports was truly otherworldly. The way he jumped passing lanes to intercept seemingly perfectly placed throws, or how he could get to the proper position a step before his man. At times it seemed absurd to believe that this foresight was obtained simply by watching a few hours of game film, and for a few brief moments I found myself wondering if the chosen one really could see into the future. Even when his position or timing was off, LeBron can make up ground better than almost anyone with that aforementioned reaction time. The easiest examples would be to point to his album of chase down blocks, notably his sports science defying SWAT on Andre Guadalla, but James could make great recoveries in less spectacular ways as well. He could quickly close out the gap after getting beat on drives to the rim, provide weak side help on contests at the rim, hustle back on the perimeter to close out on shooters, the whole nine yards. LeBron was like an experienced wine drinker on defense. He had an appreciation for the subtle parts of life. The basketball onophile could also exercise his chiseled frame to allow him to hold his own against guys in the post. LeBron's body wasn't just great for hanging out on the beach, he was very functionally strong as well. Strong enough where I'd say he could guard almost any big man in his era with the exceptions of a few more traditional bigs like Joel Embiid and a prime Marcus Salt. Out on the perimeter, he does a great job of staying in front of forwards and guards. I'm a big fan of his defensive stance as he was always remaining active and repositioning himself in front of the ball handler. He never allowed himself to get too stiff, which made him better prepared to react to his man's next move. I will say though that his daunting stature did come with some downsides when it came to defending at the point of attack. As he added more muscle to his frame over the years, he increasingly struggled with keeping smaller guards in front of him. His broad frame also made it difficult to navigate through screens from time to time, but his more active stance helped him counter this pitfall to some degree. Even with this weakness, I can still confidently say that LeBron is one of the few players in league history who could guard all five positions in his era. And that kind of versatility is impressive enough to warrant serious praise on its own, and it makes James one of the great defenders at his position in league history. When you factor that in with his standing as one of the five best offensive players ever, it's hard to think of a player capable of matching his level of greatness. That is, until you hear the merits of the other contender for the top spot. In this corner, 
standing in at six foot six and just a shade under 200 pounds, we have an individual so transcendent that he defies the laws of physics. A guy who burst out onto the scene in the midst of an era defined by the game's greatest teams and with his own individual splendor forever turned the association into a star-driven league. A man with so much confidence and swagger that at the height of his popularity he stole Clint Eastwood's title as the coolest son of a bitch on the planet. Once again, with the introduction, here's Coach Mike Woodson. I think Michael's the greatest player that has ever graced the floor. That's just my own opinion. You know, there are a lot of great ones that have the LeBron, I mean, the LeBrons, the the Kobe's, you know, uh, all great. You know, I mean, they're at the top of the list. But I just think Michael was special, you know, and in in every way that you can be special on the basketball floor, he he did it. And um I think he's just the best that's ever played. His divine airness. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. What is there to say that hasn't already been said? The flu game, the shot over Elo, the shot over Russell, the mid-air improvisations, the scoring titles, the rings, the fact that in the 1993 finals, not even a decade into MJ's career, Marv Albert called him the GOAT and not a single person even batted an eyelash. From the moment he came onto the national scene with his 1982 game winner against Georgetown, Michael Jordan commanded everyone's full attention. Off the court, he was a superstar, a global icon, a successful businessman, a movie star. On the court, he embodied more of an ideal than a human being. He paraded through the sky, traveled through time, and made everyone who ever watched him question the bounds between fantasy and reality. Michael Jordan was such a spectacular basketball player that Kobe Bryant was only 92% as good as he was, and that was still enough to make him the 10th greatest player of all time. Unfortunately for Bryant, the other 8% was out of his control. Where Kobe would launch pull-up jumpers with a defender in his face, Jordan would utilize his pogo stick hops to elevate over the top of their outstretched arms for an easy look. Where Kobe would drive to the rim with a defender shadowing his every movement, Jordan traveled through the speed force at a breakneck pace and left even the finest specimens on earth eating his dust. Where Kobe would go into oncoming traffic for a contested layup, Jordan leisurely soared over the defense like an eagle, finally free from its cage. Okay now, no more Jordan standing. Let's begin. On offense, it isn't a stretch to say that Air Jordan is the greatest scorer that ever lived. Averaging 40 points per 100 possession for his career, he earned this moniker in a multitude of ways, the most well-documented being his furious assault on the rim. A Picasso of the hardwood, the ball is brushed and the sky is canvas, he crafted some of life's most glorious works of art. His hang time was longer than this podcast series and it allowed him to contort his body in a manner that enabled him to land clean blows at the cup every trip. His great touch and balance aided him tremendously as well as he was able to brace for contact from old school paint enforcers and still gracefully sprinkle the ball into the net. It also helped that he didn't have too much resistance to deal with down there, at least in the way of his original defender, as up until 1993, 
MJ could blow by even the staunchest outside defenders with his electrifying first step. I purposely refrained from comparing Braun's first step to Mike's because the Chicago figure was on a completely different level. Forget blinking, you might miss him. If you even thought about blinking, he would have already zoomed past you. In his most springy years from 1985 to 89, he was producing between 12 and 15 free throw attempts per 100 possessions, maintaining an average of 11 per 100 for his career. The threat he posed as a finisher around the rim forced defenders to sag off him a bit in hopes of cutting off his runway to the rack. This opened up more room for his jumper, which unlike LeBron's, was money from the moment he walked into the league. Not privy to reliable data about his mid-range percentages in his prime, I can still conclude from his film and career relative true shooting of plus six on insane volume that Jordan was an effective outside shooter. When I talked to longtime Bulls writer Jason Pat, he said that the reason that Jordan doesn't get dinged for all those long twos the way that Bryant does is because he was just so much better at knocking them down. And he's absolutely right, as Jordan puts up his plus six efficiency on a similar shot profile in higher volume than Kobe, who only averaged a plus two relative efficiency rating. I mentioned the year 1993 as a sort of line of demarcation because after his return from his baseball sabbatical, Jordan had noticeably lost a step and it was clear he needed to lean more heavily on skill and guile if he wanted to maintain his previous outputs. Luckily for him, that was no problem. By the time the 1995-96 season rolled around, MJ had reinvented himself. He got yoked, refined his postgame, and further added to an already plentiful bag of tricks. Skill and guile was more than enough for the Bulls legend as he spent his ages 32 through 34 seasons averaging around 41 points per 100 possessions on plus 3 efficiency, while not missing a single game in the process, and of course winning 3 NBA titles. This all says very little about his all-time level off-ball game. Unlike LeBron and Magic, Jordan could deal haymakers with or without the basketball in his hand. Many of those jumpers we talked about required him to curl off a screen, catch the ball, plant his feet, and effortlessly launch it from multiple spots on the floor. He was also a great threat as a cutter going towards the rim where he could take advantage of his speed and incredible finishing prowess. Other than Steph, I would say that Jordan is the greatest off-ball scoring threat of the 13 guys that were seriously considered for this list, even edging out Larry Legend himself, and this combination of on-ball and off-ball scoring made him the master of Tex Winner's triangle scheme, as Coach Bruce Weber explained to me. It's perfect for the NBA game because of the, the defensive rules, um, and, and it, you know, it gave Michael a chance to have space to score. It also gave him a chance to uh, come off screens to score. Uh, you know, ISO in the post. Uh, you know, just a, a lot of freedom, and and that you know was successful. Now, you, you you know, we tried to run the triangle, and some people have tried to run it in college because of defensive rules. Everyone's sitting in the paint. I think you see it in the Olympic, uh, you know, in FIBA basketball, you don't have that NBA rule where you can't be in the paint. So it, it kind of, it disrupts it. But, but for Michael Jordan, for Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, it was a perfect offense. Coach was fortunate enough to sit in and witness firsthand Michael's ability to fit seamlessly into one of the greatest offensive schemes in history, and he knew good and well that it was not only MJ's ability to score, but his ability to pass that made him so devastating. 
which of course conveniently brings me to my next point. Somewhere between 1998 and today, it became a thing to say that Jordan was a ball hog or somehow a poor passer. Maybe it was memories of him chucking up shots in Washington. Why would you come back, man? But regardless, those misconceptions are exactly what they are. Misconceptions. Like Bryant, Jordan was always more inclined to score than pass, which was fair since both of them were damn good at it. But they were still damn good passers, with Jordan being a little bit better thanks to his size and verticality affording him entry to a wider range of passing windows. He entered the league as a strong passer, and like many ball handlers, improved over time, peaking in the early 90s with a passer rating score hovering around 7. He had a fastball of his own that he liked using to make tight passes that could break the defense. He was especially good at making decisions from the post, where he operated very similarly to Bryant, patiently waiting on the defense's decision on whether to send the double or not, and from there decided whether it was him or his teammates that would be doing the exterminating on this possession. His hang time also allowed him to analyze the defense in midair and find his teammates for easy looks. This ability to exit out of shots like that also aided his efficiency as he wasn't forced to follow through with some of those hotly contested looks. Even on his best passing days, there was always some limitations. You could tell that he was never a natural facilitator as he regularly missed guys under the rim or opted for contested looks when open teammates existed elsewhere on the floor. These misses were okay though because Michael attracted so much attention from opposing defenses that even making the right read half the time would still make him a high-level creator for his era. One of the seven or eight most interesting things I realized during my research is that despite his historically high usage rates, he rarely ever turned the ball over, posting the lowest turnover rates of any non-big man among all-time greats. Brad Sellers told me that you can chalk this up in part to his large hands, which allowed him to maintain a strong vice grip on the basketball at all times. Those large hands proved useful for other things, as in about the 14 and a half seasons, Jordan racked up the third most steals of any player in league history. This statistical accomplishment is part of the reason we remember Jordan as being such a strong defender. But we know better now that steals aren't always the best indicator of great defensive performance. Does this mean that Michael Jordan was a, dare I say, overrated defender? Hmm. Steals are a weird thing for me because on one hand, as coach Johnny Dawkins pointed out to me, they can usually indicate that a guy is just out of position and kind of got lucky, but on the other hand, as we have seen, steal percentage is a strong indicator of basketball IQ, and steals are a great way to create events on defense. Jordan's 3.1% steal percentage is just insane, none of the all-time greats hit the 3% mark. But when I look back at the tape, Mike was a degenerate gambler in pursuit of them, which is kind of ironic, since he actually was a degenerate gambler. He played the passing lanes, swept the ball when he was playing man defense, and he absolutely loved sneaking up on post players and taking their lunch money down on the low block, much to the chagrin of Carl Malone. When I talked to his former teammates Brad Sellers and Dennis Hobson about these tendencies, both of them said that they can't remember his gambles being much of a detriment to the defense. Some of this may be the effect of time on their memories, and the unspoken cahoots among old-timers to never talk shit about each other, but I tend to agree with their assessment overall. 
Like we said, all of the all-time great perimeter players gamble on defense. It's the best way of providing value. And MJ swung into more homers than strikeouts. I will say, though, that he did whiff at a higher percentage than LeBron and Bird in this area. One thing I really liked about Jordan's swiper instincts was when he was forced to provide help on a big man coming down towards the rim, instead of hopelessly trying to contest their shot vertically and risk being called for a foul, MJ would try and rip the ball while they were still getting ready to come up with it. This technique worked out for him quite a bit, especially since most big men didn't have great handle on the ball during that time. This gets me to the topic of rim protection, which was otherworldly for a guard. Second only to D. Wade in this category, who by the way, is undoubtedly the best weak side guard rim protector ever. I just want to point that out. Jordan used his strong hands and cat quick reflexes to provide additional aid to the paint. Speaking of cats, these feline abilities as a primary off-ball defender are the reason Dennis Hobson and his other teammates used to call him the Black Cat and made him a strong All-NBA candidate in the back half of his prime. However, in the early portion of his career, there was even more to Jordan's defensive game and a reason why he won a Defensive Player of the Year award, his point of attack defense. I try to avoid saying that Jordan guarded guys out on the perimeter because that's selling him short. It was more so like he was stalking the terrain, like Zoroff in the most dangerous game, and that his opponents were his prey that he was looking to pick off one by one. You see, in the late 80s and early 90s, Jordan used his length, athleticism, and reflexes to asphyxiate his man and leave no opportunity for them to try and get off a decent look. His ability to keep guys in front of him was especially important in an era where gaining a step on your man was practically fatal because defensive rotations and recoveries weren't nearly as crisp back then. Isolation scoring was also an essential ingredient in many perimeter stars scoring games, so having a guy who could bother them and constantly contest their shots was a huge plus for your team. And while Jordan's point of attack duties were greatly reduced after his sabbatical, Jim Les points out that his suffocating style would occasionally be unleashed when he, Harper, Rodman, Kukoc, and Pippen would go into their notorious full-court press, aka the defensive equivalent of the Warriors' death lineup. Overall, I would say that Jordan was a great defender for his position and was worthy of his many all-defensive first-team selections. But even with that said, he still had a couple of noticeable weaknesses on that end of the floor. In Chapter 2, I mentioned that Bryant was very theatrical in his movements, and you could see where he got it from. In his early years especially, Jordan would get into these exaggerated defensive stances that were more aesthetic than functional, and as a result would cause him to get beat by slower guards out on the perimeter. Another thing to point out is that while he was really good at using his strength on offense, he was oftentimes overpowered by stronger guys in the post. This limits his versatility as he couldn't really guard a lot of the forwards and big men of his era. Neither of these weaknesses are incredibly damaging, especially considering his position, but when we're splitting hairs the way we are, they need to be mentioned. I like the idea of comparing Jordan's defensive character arc to that of Kawhi Leonard's. Both are elite point-of-attack defenders, whether their apex are impactful enough to win Defensive Player of the Year awards as non-big men, and as they got older and their scoring loads increased, they take a more off-ball role and see more of their production on that end decline as their athleticism starts to deteriorate a bit. Comparing their individual metrics, 
LeBron is a marvelous scorer who is able to maintain his high volume and efficiency in the playoffs, but Michael Jordan owns six of the 10 highest scoring rates in NBA history, including the second highest single season scoring rate in 1986-87 behind only James Harden's 2018-2019 season. In the playoffs, he somehow manages to increase his scoring per 100 possessions by three points to unfathomable 43 points per 100 possessions while maintaining his regular season efficiency. LeBron was a clear tier or two better of a passer than Jordan was, posting a career 7.5 passer rating in comparison to Jordan's 6 rating in that stat. Both were very good defensive rebounders for their position, although I give the slight nod to Jordan as an offensive rebounder. In his early years, he loved leveraging his verticality to help him put back his own misses. To tie all of these numbers together, I would say that Michael Jordan's all-time volume scoring on career efficiency numbers slightly better than LeBron's, coupled with his good to borderline great playmaking abilities and elite off-ball value that allowed him to play alongside other ball-dominant players in one of the most effective offensive schemes in NBA history, gives him the microscopic edge over LeBron on offense, and probably makes him the second best offensive player ever behind Magic. Their team stats back this up as well, as the best offense that LeBron has ever led was the 2012-2013 Heatles, who posted a plus 6.5 relative offensive rating. In contrast, Jordan-led teams posted offensive ratings higher than that four times, including a relative offensive rating of plus 7.7 in 1996-97. Now deciding who the superior defender was proved to be a much trickier task. Growing up, you're taught that Jordan was always the more impenetrable guardian and that his superior steal rates and similar Brock percentages only solidified this point. However, as I've grown and studied the two more extensively, I came to appreciate LeBron's versatility and the importance of that type of skill set in this era. I began leaning towards LeBron here, then my friend Joe Halbert posited this comes into it for me i think the defensive impact as well is higher than lebron's just for me really yeah i do um i think lebron actually in the last has coasted on defense at times i'm not saying jordan didn't i wasn't alive in the 80s but what i've seen what i've read what i've watched what i've studied which is quite a lot on him um i think his defensive impact was higher and yeah point of attack is what i'm looking at and i think that was probably more important back then i don't know how in Again, I want to do a piece on this, but I'm not sure how important off-ball defense necessarily was in that era because it's less space to defend. Uh, whereas I think point of attack, post-defense was kind of the most important thing and he excelled in that area. That threw a real wrench at things, but his point is very valid. I started asking more of my interviewees after that about what they thought about whose defensive style was more valuable for their particular era, and a lot of them concurred with his assessment. But I was admittedly trepidatious about changing my opinion because many of the people agreeing with him were former players who, as we know, have a tendency to favor Jordan in these discussions. Finally, I heard a response that gave me the confidence to stand pat in my original observation, ironically enough from the man who co-created the LeBron one-number metric, Krishna Narsu. That's uh, kind of interesting. I think... So I guess the whole argument there is that point of attack defense in that era was important because it was isolation heavy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I guess where I push back on that is that you did have a lot of post-up bigs, right? Like, I wouldn't say... Like, I, I, I'm not entirely convinced that point-of-attack defense was more important back then than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, like, relatively speaking, like, like because there was less ball movement, I guess, I, I, and maybe that's not fair. I don't know if... Like, I, I'm, I don't know that I want to necessarily say that's accurate. I, like, I guess I'm thinking more in, like, the early OOs and not maybe the... Like, there was definitely more ball movement in, like, the 80s. Um, so, but like, but in the nineties, it, it was generally like a slow pace, kind of more ISO heavy era, right? I think, yeah. I think you'd agree with that, right? Mm-hmm. So, but like ISO heavy doesn't necessarily mean it's just, you know, one-on-one from the perimeter, right? Like it, it, there was a lot of excellent post-up bigs, like a lot of excellent, you know, like you had Hakeem and Ewing and so like, and then you had wings too so like I don't want to like I don't know necessarily that whereas now I think it's so important to stop because of the way the game is played where everything's perimeter oriented and stuff but at the same time I think you could argue certainly that like one individual defender matters less now than it did um 20 years ago because of like all the switching because of the importance to be able to guard like multiple players and like and the way like teams are attacking mismatches and stuff like so I I could definitely buy that like one individual defender is less important now so I guess if you wanted to go with that argument as to why MJ's defense is better but I I think I still lead towards LeBron because of the versatility like I think that would translate in any era too. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, I think if you pop LeBron in the '90s, you know, that versatility would help a ton, right? Like, I, I don't. So, I, and whereas I think, like, if you plopped MJ in the current era, the point of attack defense would help, but like, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> you need more defenders, right? Like, you need more. During our discussion. Krishna talked a lot about how we've witnessed LeBron thrive in multiple different contexts and roster constructions, and he's 100% correct. He was able to be an integral part to top five defenses in Cleveland, Miami, and Los Angeles, and it's because of this I give him the slight edge here in defense. I know what you're thinking now. Dean Oliver said that he'd pick the better offensive player over the better defensive player when all things are equal. And Matt loves Dean Oliver. So that means MJ must be number one, right? Hold your horses. That means MJ has the greater peak, which makes sense considering he has the highest score in most single-season all-in-one number metrics. But that's not what the quest is all about. Hell, I would have told you to just go watch Ben Taylor's Greatest Peak series if that were the case. We want to know... Who was the greatest player of all time? And while MJ has the slightly better peak, LeBron has 18 years of high-level production compared to Jordan's 12.5. That means it's going to take our accolade and anecdotal sections to truly get to the bottom of this. Hey, Quest listeners. 
we wanted to take a quick break from our journey to give a shout out to one of the sponsors of this limited series, Retroshaded. At its core, the quest for the best is 10 stories of extraordinary individuals overcoming great obstacles and defying all odds. That makes Retroshaded, a brand built on resiliency and the determination to never give up, the perfect partner for this series. During a rough stretch in his life, the company's CEO and founder, Trevor Macklem, was looking for his purpose. And at the time, the only thing that brought him joy was snowboarding with his brothers. He began obsessively researching the history of the sport to the point that he even started wearing retro-style sunglasses similar to the ones that one of the sport's pioneers, Craig Kelly, wore as he was snowboarding down the slopes all over the world. And after receiving a lot of attention while wearing them at a local resort, Trevor realized that there was an opportunity for him to find his purpose. But more importantly, he realized he had a chance to spread to others the sense of inspiration those sunglasses gave him. And just like that, Retroshaded was born. Fast forward to today, and Retroshaded now serves as a symbol of hope and determination for thousands of people all across the country. With over 30 different styles and colors to choose from, Retroshaded has something for everyone. Visit their website, Retroshaded.com today, and pick out a premium pair of sunglasses that are just right for you, without breaking the bank. Listeners of this series get an additional 20% discount by using the code QUEST20 checkout. Visit Retroshaded.com and join the community of hope and inspiration today. Now back to our limited series. And we're back. Now time for our final round of AOS. It's important to note here that while I have been referring to LeBron in the past tense for the sake of my own mental sanity, he's still in the league as of recording this in October 2021, which means he still has time to climb up the all-time Osaki leaderboards. For now, though, he remains at third all-time with a respectable score of 205.5. As it stands, he's a four-time champ, four-time finals MVP, four-time regular season MVP, four-time runner-up, 13-time All-NBA first-team selection, three-time All-NBA second-team selection, five-time All-Defensive first, one-time All-Defensive second team, 17-time All-Star, one-time scoring champ, one-time assist king, one-time free throws made leader, and six-time PER leader. If you ask me, he may be a little underrated by this measure because of the weird unspoken consensus that the NBA voter pool has come to that they're just going to blackball him from all defensive teams after the year 2014. Despite him having an argument for being included as a second teamer in either the 2015-16 season or the 2019-20 season. If you hadn't already guessed it, or read the article I wrote about it, there's no one in league history with an AOS score higher than MJ's 225.5. He accumulated the score by being a six-time champ, six-time finals MVP, five-time MVP, three-time runner-up, one-time Defensive Player of the Year winner, a ten-time All-NBA first-teamer, one-time All-NBA second-teamer, nine All-Defensive first-team selection, 14-time All-Star, 3-time Steals Leader, 2-time Free Throws Made Leader, and a 7-time PER Leader. For those of you wondering at home, LeBron would theoretically be able to tie Jordan in this stat if he won one more ring, was a Finals MVP, had two more All-Star appearances, and one more All-NBA First Team. Those accomplishments are definitely achievable, 
But you would also have to factor in the fact that it would have taken James 20 years to get that 225 and a half, while it only took Jordan 14 and a half. That future projection hypothetical doesn't really matter anyways, since we're considering their all-time standing as of October 2021. So now, just to recap here, we've established that Jordan had the higher peak and superior accomplishment profile, especially when you think about it on a per-year basis. But LeBron sustained longevity at the level he's played at for nearly two decades technically means he's had more impact on winning basketball games than Jordan has, if you do the math. Still, none of that gives us the definitive answer we're all looking for. So to try and gain some clarity, I went back and listened to some of my interviews and looked through my notes to see if I could get some consensus on who the GOAT was. I think you can guess how that went. Here's Dishes and Dimes' Katie Heidel. wasn't as captivated at the time. I was captivated at the time of Jordan because, like, I was a kid. And I think it, like, widened the lens of what basketball could be to me. But I still felt very much an outsider at that time. And I think LeBron I just, like, witnessed that a lot more closely. Um, so this is all very, like, personal but I think you appreciate that because it's like a pretty personal question Mm -hmm. and I just think too the way that LeBron has like fit within he's like brought the game along with him you know what I mean and I don't think Jordan necessarily did that as much because I also think that was a product of the time that he was playing Jordan versus now LeBron and I think um, you know I think he's done a lot even when you talk about like maintenance and the the maintenance and the work that players have to do that we I don't think we talk about enough let's keep score of this this makes it 1-0 LeBron now here's Lando Moore from last episode you know what I, I the reason I say that Michael because remember I talked about you know not only being able to carry a team but also to inspire a team. You know, I wouldn't say that his tactics were, you know, textbook uh, because, you know, he insulted a lot of guys. He demeaned a lot of guys. But, you know, nevertheless, that was his brand of leadership, and he ultimately got the most out of these guys, you know, out of fear maybe. Uh, But, yeah, I I would say, again, from a a fundamental soundness, uh, from an explosiveness, from the ability to carry a team and to rise to the occasion, and not have a team that was, uh, you know, specifically, specifically built, um, you know, three superstars type of thing. I, the thing about LeBron is that in so many of his championships, I'm not saying all of them, but in so many of them, you know, he had not only a Robin, but a Commissioner Gordon <laughs> to to go I after love that reference. other I love teams, that reference. you know, so, uh, and, and Michael, I mean, except for Pippen, who emerged eventually, and a lot of it had to do with, you know, Michael's, uh, Michael's ability on the court and, and forced defenses to adjust to him so much that it gave Scottie Pippen great opportunities. Okay, now we're 1-1 tied. Here's MJ's former teammate and the current mayor of Warrensville Heights, Brad Sellers. Well, I, I can say this, that it was uh, one of the greatest pleasures I've really had 
as a uh, athlete to play with a person I consider the greatest, the greatest to ever play the game, right? And that's not, I don't say that lightly because, uh, you know, I caught the, you know, I, I was a child watching Will Chamberlain play. I saw Kareem. I played against Kareem, right? These are all phenomenal players, Magic Bird, all of them, right? But this one man, this one man, really held that league in the palm of his hands for a number of years, right? His, his talent level and his uh, ability to not only be creative, but to drive with a passion to just persevere. I mean, his, his I mean, it, it was off the charts. His ability is off the charts. There's no question about it. Anytime I'm asked, right, hands down, he's the best. I'm not just saying it because I play with him. He's the best. MJ takes the lead 2-1. to one. Here's Pacers reporter Scott Agnes. I'd probably go LeBron, but I want to see the finished product to you know make a final say. I honestly hate that conversation. I know that doesn't help you, but it's really hard, and this is probably the crux of your problem you're trying to solve, is how do you compare greatness over eras? What do you factor in? Right. That's that's the great thing about the conversation conversation piece you're trying to create here. Mm. Um, the knocks on LeBron, right, is that he got to the finals while he got to the finals so many times he lost a lot. LeBron didn't, or excuse me, Jordan didn't lose a lot. Well, I think getting to the finals and the frequency at which he did at his peak, I would value that more than just an undefeated record, if you will. Um, and a lot more factors to go into that as to who they're going against in all those finals, the level of team they carried the fact that the LeBron, for example, did it in three different cities with three different teams, one of which being quote unquote, small market and the challenge it took. I mean, you go back to what was it like his Oh seven um, finals team. Mm-hmm. That was not good. He carried that team. Um, whereas you look at the, the level of team when Jordan took, much better and they did it with the same group relatively time and time again but still both were overwhelmingly successful but yeah i i'm i trend to be more of a lebron guy we have a 2-2 tie now here's john krasinski from chapter one again be kind of one of the tiebreakers that i might use in my evaluations is okay both of these guys peaks were incredibly high and maybe very very close and similar but player X, you know, did it for four more years than player Y did. Um, that to me is like, honestly, I think that's LeBron's biggest argument toward the number one spot is, um, you know, I do think that Michael Jordan's peak was higher than LeBron James a little bit, not by a lot, but a little bit, but certainly no one has sustained the level of excellence within his era for a longer stretch than LeBron has. And so you look at that and it's really compelling. Now, Jordan didn't only have two or three years of, of, you know, kind of peak. His peak was, yeah, I don't know, we can debate about it, but eight years or, or, or a little bit more maybe. Um, but so it's, that's nothing to snip, to, to shake your, you know, to, to just dismiss. Um, but yeah, I think like LeBron's best argument 
uh, for that top spot is, look, he's done it for darn near 20 years. And he's been one of the top five players in the league for all of that time and probably top one or two for most of that time. So that's, you know, that's really, really impressive. 3-2 Braun. MJ's on the brink of elimination. Here's Duke assistant Chris Carwell once more. I always, it, maybe it's not unfair, maybe I need to rethink it, but I'll always put the baddest of the bad, right, got the chips. You know what I'm saying? Nobody could ever come, nobody can ever top Jordan. And, not be, and this is not because it's just because Jordan is not my favorite player, but he's the, 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 the best player that I've seen in, with my own two eyes. Mm-hmm. The best player I've seen with my own two eyes is Mike Jordan. Now, people can put LeBron one. I don't. I don't argue that. But the best player that I've ever seen, and he's not even my favorite player, is Michael Jordan. Three-three tie. Okay, we've arrived at Game Seven. Who's going to take the title belt home? Let's listen to this clip from former player Brian Stith a player who competed against MJ at the same position and watched his Cleveland Cavs tank for a chance at drafting the Akron, Ohio phenom. Just from the, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but, um, you know, in your opinion, if you don't feel comfortable answering this, that's fine. But in your opinion, who's, who's the better one between the two, Jordan or LeBron? Well, I think, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, when you look at the fact when you look at somebody's peak, I think Jordan's six-year window is better than LeBron's. When you look at longevity, I think that the fact that LeBron went to nine out of 10 NBA championships, that's undisputed. So I'll let you use your methodology to determine who's the best. (laughs) Well, so much for that. I joked with Brian after his response that this was the exact problem I have been having for months now and the reason I had sought him out for this project in the first place. He's right, though. These two are so goddamn close historically that it's going to take a subjective analysis of their legacies to figure this thing out. So let's do a little thought exercise and lay out the various arguments that two camps normally make in this debate. For this, I'm going to give you the argument that a person who's normally pro-LeBron or pro-Jordan would normally make on their behalf, and then tell you what I would counter that claim with if I was arguing on the other side's behalf. We'll start with the pro-Jordan arguments. The most obvious and easily most cited one is the six rings is greater than four argument. If you've noticed... I really try making it a point in my arguments to avoid talking too much about how many rings a particular player won and more about how that player's game would impact championship rosters. Individual players don't win championships. Teams do. Championships are a team accomplishment. There have been many seasons throughout NBA history where the team with the best player in the league does not win an NBA championship. This even happens to MJ a couple times. You can make a really strong argument that he's the best player in the world from 1987 to 1990. And yet he never comes away with a title in any of those three years. 
Team sports require more than the brilliance of one transcendent player. Okay, so those same fans would then counter my point by saying that not only did MJ win more titles, but he was 6 for 6 on his trips to the finals. If you look at the SRS stat, which is basically a one-number metric that calculates how strong a team is based on a bunch of factors that I'm not going to bore you with right now, of all the teams they played in the finals, Jordan's opponents averaged a 6.84, while LeBron's averaged a 7.4. That difference of about .56 is equivalent to the SRS difference between the second and fourth highest scoring SRS teams in the 2021 season. Which means it's fair to say that James's teams had to face a more difficult finals gauntlet. The next counterclaim that would follow would surely be the unquantifiable, yeah, but Jordan was just so much more of a killer than James was. He wanted to rip your heart out and feed it to his dog. I admitted earlier that the killer thing has some truth to it. There are guys in the league with a flair for the big moment. Jordan was definitely one of those guys. But for every one of these... LeBron has one of these. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer as the Cavaliers have pulled it out to tie the series. And for every one of these. Final seconds. James on the drive, goes inside, misses, won't go. MJ has one of these. Down to five. Jordan played by Porter. Down to two. Here's Jordan. And we go to overtime. They have both hit and missed huge shots. That's how shooting variability works. Both of them have shown time and time again at this point that they can come through when you need them to the most. And to use MJ's slight, if even any, advantage over Braun in this regard as your sole reason for putting him as number one all time is disingenuous. Shit, if we're using the logic I used with Bird, LeBron might have the edge over Jordan in terms of clutch performance because of his aptness to pass up a bad hero ball shot for a really good one to an open teammate. Not an argument I would make, but I'm just putting it out into the atmosphere. By now, the Jordan stands are now visibly frustrated. The last comment was a little too much for them to handle. They counter with, uh, if he wasn't a murderer, then why didn't his finals matchups never go to a game seven? How was he always able to get the job done in six games or less? Well, I'd start by repeating once again that teams win NBA championships, not players. So that's not necessarily a fair point to make when you're comparing individual players. I'd also remind you that his six finals opponents averaged a SRS of 6.84. Those are statistically very strong teams. But Jordan's teams during those years averaged a score of 9.1. In fact, 
In every year except 1993 when they had a 6.19 SRS and the Suns had a 6.27 SRS, the Bulls always had a significantly higher SRS than their opponent, which tells me that Jordan's teams were generally favored to win those titles. LeBron's teams only had a higher SRS score in three of their 10 finals matchups. And get this. While LeBron's opponents averaged an SRS score of 7.4, his teams only averaged a score of 4.6. So yeah, the reason it took LeBron a little longer to win some of his titles than it did Jordan is because he technically wasn't supposed to win most of them anyways. Oh, LeBron had tougher opponents, you say? Then what happened in 2011? Why was the supposed greatest player ever being shut down by the likes of Jason Terry and J.J. Barea. Ah, the dreaded 2011 finals. The one glaring war on one of the most unblemished careers in the history of sports. The chosen one averaging less than 18 points per game in the finals. What the hell happened here? I myself was pretty curious about that one, so I investigated. What I learned is something I will carry with me for the rest of my basketball life. You see, the truly special players never really have objectively bad games. Most of the time we think they do, it's almost always a case of their team being out-schemed by the opposing team. And that's exactly what happened here. The Mavs play smaller guys like Terry and Berea on LeBron, so that their longer, more physical defenders could pack the paint and load up on James' drives to the rim. This forced James to choose between shooting over the top of the defense or taking it to the rack and kicking it out to open shooters when they collapsed on him. As we've already established, James is a savant and always, always makes the right basketball play. So he opted to go with the latter. This turned the finals into a shooting contest, which played right into the Mavs' hands as they had been the superior three-point shooting team throughout the entire postseason, outshooting the Heat 39-33%. to The NBA is a make-or-miss league, and the team that normally shoots the best from three in a game, or in this case a playoff series, is oftentimes the team that wins. That means that LeBron's greatest failure in his NBA career was probably the result of shooting variability. Isn't life just absurd? Jordan fans are literally fuming now. Why does this buffoon keep throwing around numbers and saying the word SRS? They lay down their final trump card. All too often, I've watched LeBron take possessions off on the other end of the court. At times, it seems like he's even coasting out there. Jordan never took a possession off. He gave you 110% at all times. And that, to me, is why he will always be the greatest. Deep breaths. Breathe in. Breathe out. We've already talked about this. There's a difference between playing off-ball defense and not playing any at all. LeBron did way more of the former than the latter. And you know who else did this at the end of his prime? MJ. Watch those 96, 97, and 97, 98 seasons back over again. 
He was tasked with playing roaming free safety way more than he has ever challenged on ball. Why wouldn't he be? Why would you want your offensive focal point overexerting himself on the defensive end of the floor? Come on, guys. Be smarter than that. I will admit, though, I did notice a handful of pretty indefensible lapses from James during the 2007-2018 season, but in his defense, no pun intended, he did play all 82 games and led the league in minutes in what was his 15th season in the league. Okay, now let's take our Jordan hat off and put on our LeBron hat. Here's how a conversation with some LeBron cronies would play out if I was debating them through a pro-Jordan lens. They'd start with hardware as well. Six may be greater than four, but ten is greater than six. It's like Coach Lanier told you, Matt. The thing about LeBron is he's always at the dance. That is a solid point. Ten is indeed greater than six. But the premise gets at a very important stylistic difference between the two. LeBron's ball diamond style that allows him to quarterback great offenses by simply placing four role players around him makes him the greatest floor raiser of all time. This skill is what has allowed him to drag lesser teams to so many consecutive finals appearances. On the flip side, Jordan's ability to play both on and off the ball makes it easier to slot high-level players next to him and build teams with a higher ceiling. Hence why his finals teams have a higher average SRS. This all kind of gets at a philosophical question of which style you ultimately prefer, floor or ceiling raising. In this instance, I'd argue that if your ultimate goal is to win the NBA championship, wouldn't you want the guy that helps give you the best chance at creating that team? I know I would. The cronies would fundamentally disagree with that final statement. They would say that if we're talking about individual players, being able to lift lesser teams is more impressive. They would then cite the 2007 Cavs and say that there's absolutely no way that Jordan could have carried that terrible team to the finals. I'd say they were right. Jordan couldn't carry any team to the finals, and neither could LeBron. In team sports, players do not carry teams. The furthest a player can carry an objectively poor team is to the playoffs. Maybe they eke out a first-round victory. That's it. The 2006-2007 Cavs were not an objectively bad team. They were the fourth-best defense in the league. They were top five in turnovers, both enforcing them and avoiding them, top three in both offensive and defensive rebounding, seventh in net rating, and seventh in SRS. They were a defensively-oriented team that was very well-coached and featured number 23 as their best offensive player. Well, what about his 3-1 to finals comeback? And the bubble championship. Those are probably two of the toughest championship wins ever. LeBron even said so. Other than pointing out the very fortunate timing of the Draymond suspension and the Bogut injury, I will stipulate that James's feat in 2016 probably is the single greatest achievement of any athlete ever. But even admitting that doesn't technically mean he's the GOAT. Then I would turn to the bubble thing, and while obviously being sympathetic of emotional weight those players were forced to carry, 
looking at it from a strictly on-court perspective, may that outcome have also been influenced by shooting variability? Zach Lowe does a great job of pointing this out, but James Davis, Caruso, Rondo, and Morris all saw improvements in shooting efficiency from the regular season to the playoffs, which, as we have said throughout this entire series, is not something players normally do. AD is an especially interesting case study here as from 16 feet to the three-point line, he shot 55% during the playoffs. The closest he's ever gotten to that mark in his entire career was in the 2015-16 season when he shot 43% from out there in the regular season. I'm just speculating here, but maybe that playoffs looks a little different if AD doesn't reach a level of shooting mastery that he hasn't achieved before or since those playoffs. The cronies rapid fire answer. Oh, so you want to play the what if game? What if George Carl puts Gary Payne on MJ at the start of the series instead of at game four? Maybe then the great Michael Jordan is only five for six. I actually wouldn't mind that being the case, honestly. At least then Seattle would probably still have a basketball team. But seriously though, if it's rare for an all-timer to have a bad game, it's nearly impossible to expect that any single man can shut them down, no matter how venerable that defender might be. I plan on writing more in depth on this in the future, but for now I'll leave you with the Cliff Notes version. I went back and tracked many of the shots MJ took during the 96 final series, and in Game 5 I tracked all of the 18 shots he launched that night and counted only two objectively bad misses. One he actually ended up making because, you know, he's Michael freaking Jordan. And the other was a late game desperation three with time slipping away. If you go through the other Peyton guarded games, you will find a similar trend take place. He was still getting to his spots, still maintaining his usual shooting form. Most of those looks he took with Peyton tagging him were still fairly good. It's just sometimes it's not your day. Or days in this case. Payton still did a better job than most ever have at checking Mike. But there isn't a human being in this version of the timeline capable of completely shutting down either one of these two. The final attack that I can think of that they might try and weaponize here is the classic, MJ was an absolute douche to his teammates. He literally abused them, both physically and mentally. And to that, I will acknowledge that his methods were a bit Machiavellian to say the least, but I wouldn't necessarily say LeBron was the most agreeable teammate either. There's the obvious casualties like Kyrie Irving and David Blatt, but he also left a sore taste in the mouth of guys like Mario Chalmers, Ricky Davis, Antoine Jameson, and even our hero Shaq had some negative things to say about his former teammate in his book, Shaq Uncut. Both these guys are textbook narcissists. That usually doesn't bode well for playing nice with others. Anyway, thought exercise complete. What I hope all of you got from this rambling is that no matter where you stand on the GOAT debate, you have a very compelling argument to back your stance. If you think that it's Michael Jordan, there's a good chance you're right. If you think it's LeBron James, you're probably correct too. That's not the answer you came here for, though, is it? So I'll let you use your methodology to determine who's the best. 
You're here to find out what eight months, 70 interviews, and hundreds of hours of research has to say about this question. That's why you're here. And I love each and every one of you very much for it. Thank you so much for making the dreams of a young boy who used to spend his Wednesday nights begging his mother to stay up an hour past his bedtime just to watch the first half of the televised late night game come true. And it's now time for that very same youngster to make one final arbitrary decision. After all, it only makes sense that a game that is played by human beings is decided in this fashion, in the most human manner possible. And all my analysis has pointed me at one overarching term. Audacity. Don't understand? Well, to explain, I'm going to have to call upon one more corny superhero reference. My favorite piece of superhero lore is probably the two-part animated film adaptation of Frank Miller's 1986 comic book miniseries, The Dark Knight Returns. For those of you unfamiliar with the plot, in its simplest form, it's basically a series of events that culminates in a grand clash between Batman and Superman. Not too different from the quest for the best, honestly. Here, MJ is clearly Superman, with his extraterrestrial levitation abilities and a larger-than-life mystique. And LeBron is the Dark Knight, the underdog tactician with a brooding exterior. If you hadn't already guessed it, the story ends much like this one does. With the Dark Knight towering over his defeated adversary. His greatest rival of them all finally conquered. At last. And while his triumph was undoubtedly aided by his intellect and preparation, what allowed him to vanquish such a worthy adversary was his resolve. His audacity. His audacity to stake a claim at the throne. Bruce Wayne motivated by the death of his parents. LeBron by his impoverished upbringings in the toughest parts of Akron, Ohio. Both were forced to endure a great deal of trauma and heartache. Both swore an oath to bring glory to their cities. Both needed to leave to gain the requisite set of skills necessary. In the end, both delivered on their promise. Bruce returned as the Dark Knight, and the king brought the crown back to the land. I'll never forget re-watching that Nuggets-Lakers Game 5 Western Conference Finals matchup, where LeBron hit the dagger three to put the game out of reach and clinch a 10th NBA Finals appearance. My Jordan fandom didn't want to admit it at the time, but in that moment, it was almost like the king was repeating Batman's victory speech on his way to the bench for me, MJ, and all those that ever doubted him on his quest to the top spot to hear loud and clear. It took me years and it cost a fortune. Luckily, I had both. But I didn't have to go easy on you. I want you to remember that. I wanted to remind you to stay out of my way. In all the years to come, in your most private moments, I want you to remember the one man that beat you. 
Special thanks to Mike Cleansing for all his support with this project. I greatly appreciate you, my friend. Thank you to my producer, Roger Curidan, for sitting through hours of recording with me. I love you to death, brother. Thank you to my music producer, Ben Roman, and my graphic designer, Margot Brusades. Thank you to my video producer, Nigel Coma, and my very patient editor, Ben Malian, both of whom are not only integral parts of the series, but also some of my closest friends. Thank you so much to the 71 great people who took the time out of their lives to do an interview with me for this series. Thank you to my loving support system of incredible friends, a loving family, and my endlessly supportive girlfriend for sticking with me throughout this entire process. And most importantly, thank you so much to everyone who made it through this entire series. All of your support truly means the world to me, and I am forever grateful to all of you for it. Without you all, I truly am just a goofy bastard with a microphone. Until next time, this has been the quest for the best. <laughs>